Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Coming up on Believe in Soccer, it's not working for Chicharito and the Galaxy. Is there time to get it right? It will be the United States versus Canada at the Gold Cup, but who exactly would play in such a match, and will it actually happen? Plus, Jim Curtin, MLS Coach of the Year candidate with the Philadelphia Union, comes your way next on the Shep Messing Daily Cast. Hi, and welcome, everyone, to the midweek edition of Believe in Soccer. My name is Steve Cangelosi. There are just nine games remaining for most clubs in Major League Soccer. In one of our first shows, we promoted this notion that Los Angeles is now the epicenter of the American soccer universe. But, Shep, there are two teams in L.A. One is barely above the playoff line, and the other is next to last in the conference. You said yesterday you believe LAFC will bounce back, maybe contend for MLS Cup. What about the Galaxy? And is Chicharito once considered this team's greatest asset, now its biggest problem? (laughs) Uh, Let me start by saying I expect the LA Galaxy to turn it around the same way I said LAFC would. Look, you know, Steve, that I like big players, right? I like stars. I love Chicharito coming here. But Alicia Rodriguez, she does LAG Confidential. She really knows her stuff. And she analyzed why he's been so poor, maybe better than I can. So let me tell you what she said. And, and I agree with it. First of all, he, he's, he's not Zlatan. This is not a player that can walk on the field. Her words were, you know, stick his right foot seven feet in the air and flick a, bit, a ball out of the air into the goal. Not his style of play. He injury with the calf, out several months, out of shape. This is a player, Chicharito. He really needs to find a rhythm, a flow to the game. He hasn't had the opportunity to do that. I think if he could put together, he's only started in four games. If he could get on the field and start five, six, seven games, then he could develop the rhythm, the fluidity. That's the type of player he is. I think the Galaxy need him to do that. All right, his best scoring chance, though, and their loss to Seattle over the weekend, maybe you saw it, was a meek shot just directly into the goalkeeper's chest. Let me do the math that counters what Alicia's talking about, just to some degree. The Galaxy have earned two points in the seven matches he's played. They've earned 13 in the six matches without him. Here's the issue for me. Whether you believe Chicharito is good for this team or not, Now there's this growing belief that he and Christian Pavone, the other so-called indispensable player, don't have any chemistry together, and that would be a disaster for this group. Yeah, look, the other factor, Steve, is the polarizing effect that has with their fans out there. Remember, Chicharito, he played with Chivas, with Man United, with Real Madrid, so there's a real mix out there of LA Galaxy supporters, some of them saying, hey, he was a bust four months ago, and some of them still on the bandwagon. Look, I still believe in him. A player of his quality doesn't lose it overnight, and I've always said that about attacking players. If he gets a run of games, if he's in shape, he'll work it out with Pavone. I mean, great players do that. This is a year in which Euro 2020 was postponed. So were the Olympics, and the U.S. men's national team has had games wiped off the schedule 
because of the pandemic. The United States has been drawn into this group with Canada, Martinique, and a team to be determined from the results of the preliminary round. For the purposes of our conversation here, let's just assume the tournament is going to be played and the U.S. and Canada field its best teams. The matchup has some juice now, doesn't it? You know what? 100%. But that's the only matchup that has the juice. I love that. If they both (laughs) field their first teams, I'm going to watch that game and I'm not going to watch the rest of the tournament because for me, the tournament, look, it's lost a little bit of the luster Maybe with everything going on in the world, everything that will be going on next summer, it's not high priority for me, but I'd love to see the first team of Canada against the first team of the U.S. Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David against America's best, except we just don't know whether that will be a reality. So the Gold Cup is scheduled for July 10th through August 1st. CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers are slated to take place involving the United States in June. The pool of U.S. players next summer, it has to be large. If you're an American player and you're playing well by any real metric, you're probably going to get a shot either in the Olympics if you're under 23 or the Gold Cup or most importantly, World Cup qualifying, which has to trump everything else, right? Yeah, it definitely trumps everything else. And again, Steve, the uncertainty from now until getting to June It's going to be very difficult, and Greg Berhalter has a big job ahead of him, really trying to assemble that kind of roster that can handle those kind of games. Jim Curtin is coming up in a moment. I did want to get your thought on this before we get to the coach. An American manager in a top-five league was fired this week. David Wagner is out at Schalke with the club winless in its last 18 games. I know there's something unfair about this conversation, but when this happens – Do you think it affects the perception of the acumen of the American manager? Uh, There was this fear that Bob Bradley's exit at Swansea would impact others that followed. I'm not sure it has. Yeah. And, and, you know, I understand the premise. I I don't buy it. Bob Bradley's a perfect example. Uh, That short stay at Swansea City didn't affect anything. And look at what Jesse Marsh is doing right now. And yeah, look, I mean, 18 games without a win, you're going to lose your lot, your job. But look at what he, he has done. He, he managed Huddersfield Town to the Premier League in 2017. And look what he's done with good young players, right? Pulisic at Dortmund, Weston McKinney at Schalke. So I don't think you can almost take the American tag off of it and just look at him now as a manager. Jim Curtin is now in his sixth full season as head coach of the Philadelphia Union, the team that gave him the job on an interim basis at first after the dismissal of John Hackworth in 2014. A lot has happened between then and now. Let's find out if he believes this is the best group he's had. Jim, welcome. Your club has played 14 games and you've lost just two. Something's going very well, I imagine. How are you these days? Doing good, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, when you when you think back to, gosh, a long time ago uh, when I came into this job as, as uh, the youngest coach in the league, I have to admit I wasn't quite ready for what the uh, job entailed. But uh, Nick Sukevich trusted me and Jay Sugarman with the job, and uh, it's a, it's been a long time coming. But uh, we've we've established a pretty consistent group now and uh, kind of built on our philosophy. And uh, the the players are doing a great job playing and executing on the field now. Jim, Bruce Arena, I, I don't know where to start with you. There's so many good stories, but back to your first year, first years on the job, you know, Bruce Arena, 
always said, you know, give these young coaches a long leash. Don't be so quick, you know, a knee-jerk reaction to find yeah. another coach. I think you're, you're really, when I look at the league over the last 10 years, 15 years, you're a shining example of a guy who, look, it was borderline during those rough years, but should have stuck with you. And now you're at the top of the game. Talk us through that. Yeah, I, I agree with your comment. It, it does take time. You, you know, you look back at some of the great coaches our league has had. You mentioned Bruce Arena, Bob Bradley, guys that I learned a ton from. Um, you look at the, the longevity in our league, a guy like Peter Vermees, who it, it took a little while to build the foundation there in Kansas City. And now um, they're kind of a, a gold standard of a franchise that's, you know, always in the playoffs. Uh, so, again, it, it took patient ownership for sure. Uh, it took people believing in me. Uh, and then it took a, a real belief in the philosophy. You know, I, I won't bore you guys with the long, detailed one, but, you know, we have three pillars that we kind of stand by. We wanted to build from within, so we wanted to really build with our academy uh, and also promote coaches from within, from our academy to our first team. Uh, number two was we wanted to be a, a cohesive uh, group that we believed, you know, 11 players working together can beat any individual group of superstars. Um, I think you saw that maybe a little bit against Miami just recently. Uh, so, again, uh, that, that belief that the 11 is stronger than individuals. We knew we weren't going to be a team that, you know, bought an Ibrahimovic or a David Beckham type of player. Um, so we had to kind of embrace that philosophy. Uh, and then the third one was, was innovation. We have to be creative in how we, we scout and how we recruit players and how we bring players in. Um, our use of, uh, you know, the running data and, and, and electronics uh, on the field and our sports performance department, um, they have to kind of be finding every little advantage that we can possibly find. So, you know, those three things are something that we always fall back on, whether we're winning and losing. Uh, and like you said, uh, I had to grow on the job. Uh, I was kind of a, a player that, you know, I, I put in some time in the academy and learned a lot there coaching with young players and had a chance to try new things. Uh, and then, like so many people in pro sports, came into the job not the way you want to. Someone had to lose their job, and, and John Hackworth, who's still a close friend. Um, but I had my opportunity. I, I ran with it. And like you said, uh, I have had some highs and lows, but now it – you know, I, I'm most proud in the last five seasons, we've increased our point total each year. And it hasn't been huge jumps, but they've been improvements. Uh, and we need to keep that going this year. It seems like you have a handle on how fragile the profession could be. You are the third longest tenured head coach now in Major League Soccer. That sounds crazy, I'm sure, from your perspective, considering what you just said. I'm sure you also reached out to Chris Armas, a good friend who was dismissed by the Red Bulls a few weeks ago. That had to hurt. You've known him so long. For sure. And look, on the, on the human level, Chris is a close friend. Uh, you, you never want to see guys lose their job. Um, it, it sounds crazy to me for you guys to tell me I'm the third longest tenured uh, coach in this league. Uh, you know, but, but Chris specifically, I know he put his heart and soul into, into what he did at Red Bull. Uh, again, him and Jesse Marsh are guys that I still talk with on a, on a weekly basis. Uh, and, and Chris, he's a real winner in the game. You know, he's a guy that uh, I, I looked up to as a young player. I learned so much from. Uh, he leaves his heart and soul uh, on the field and, and with his team. Um, unfortunately, you know, that maybe the results didn't go uh, the way that, that Red Bull had hoped this year. I think it's a tricky year. And, and again, you, you see it now even in the NBA. They're, they're releasing coaches in, in, under these circumstances of a, a COVID year where it's just been such a challenge for everybody. I think it's a little harsh, um, but I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't know all the goings on at Red Bull. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a really tough year to be fully judging uh, players and also coaches because um, no one's ever been through anything like this. So uh, it's a little unfortunate what happened with Chris. 
Um, you know, anyone who says that there's not accountability in this league in this, in this year, um, you have to look no further than that situation, the Atlanta situation, you know, other coaches um, that could change. So it's the, the harsh reality of our sport. Um, you know, but Chris, first and foremost, is a, is a great person, a great friend, and you never want anybody to, to lose their job. So that was hard. Um, you know, he, he's, again, meant so much to me and, and is such a, a good person and a great coach. So uh, challenging time for sure. Um, I think a little bit harsh in a season where we're not even playing equal number home and away games. There's no crowds. There's, there's so many things behind the scenes that have been difficult. Um, and I know he, he navigated things the best he could. Um, but ultimately, uh, at the end, um, they made a change, which is always hard. So, Jim, I'm going to change direction. Knowing yeah. you a little bit personally, I saw a quote by Ernst Tanner when he first came in, came to you, to the union from Red Bull Salzburg. And he said, the quote was, why should I lie to somebody? If I don't want to tell you anything, I won't do it. But I don't lie to you. So tell me how your partnership has gone. It's, it's produced results. Yeah, so I think your quote sums it up. Ernst is, is, is very black and white. There's no gray. You know, uh, he, he tells people what he thinks. Uh, he has his opinions on players. Unfortunately, we agree uh, a lot on, on the, the types of players that we've brought in. Um, look, anytime a, a new sporting director comes in, um, there can be changes and, and there can be quick changes. Um, to his credit, he gave me uh, the opportunity to get to know me. Uh, gosh, he was my, I think, third, third sporting director I'd had in about three seasons. So um, I took that as, you know, a, a way to learn and grow. Uh, I took little things from everyone that I've worked for um, that they did things really well. Uh, and then other things that maybe you, you learn from and you tweak and change a little bit. So um, Ernst has been fair with me. Uh, we have a great relationship. Uh, his ability to kind of mine, uh, I'll just say, the, the underdog type player, the Casper Shabilko, who's, you know, coming off injuries in the second division, Kai Wagner, a third, third division player in Germany, uh, the kid Jacob Glesnes uh, at center back who, you know, center backs, it takes a little while for people to get accolades, but the kid is, he's really, really good and does a good job. So uh, we've done a great job scouting, uh, mining kind of some uh, I'll just say uh, some diamonds in the rough uh, that have to go out in the field and compete and punch above their weight. Let's be honest, because uh, each week you're playing against. This week it was it was Higuain and and Pizarro and and Matuidi, uh, guys that I didn't expect to even be in this league. You know, uh, sometimes I blink and I, I look up and I'm coaching against Thierry Henry and I just kind of pinch myself and I'm having conversations with him about the league and how much he respects the players in the league. So. Um, it, it's, it's crazy. It's been a whirlwind. But um, to your point with, with Ernst, um, we've had a good connection. Uh, I've really embraced and loved the, the, the Red Bull philosophy. Uh, if, if you step back and look at it, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fun way to play. I think a lot of times people misconstrue it as, oh, they don't want to keep the ball. They don't want to have possession. Um, and that's not the case. They, they want to make other teams uncomfortable, obviously, and, and, and score in, in as few passes as possible. Win the ball as close to the opponent's goal uh, and go forward. And no one can argue their success rate. That's one thing you can't argue. You look at Leipzig, you look at um, what Salzburg's doing and, and Jesse Marsh there, and their ability to also sell players uh, is, is something that's a perfect fit for the Philadelphia Union's philosophy. Uh, and in the coming days, you're going to see some, some good news on the, the positive front uh, on, on kind of proof of concept and, and finalizing um, one of those deals that's, that's getting closer and closer now. 
Well, you obviously set us up for it. Does the club resist selling Brendan Aronson now? Can you at least wait until the end of the MLS season? You know, we've heard the rumors, obviously, at Red Bull Salzburg. Go as far as you can with us here, and I understand there might be limitations. But uh, Jesse Marsh, for instance, understood two years ago the value of keeping a Tyler Adams until season's end. I mean, what's your philosophy on that? Yeah, look, I... I've, I've made no secret about it. I want to coach Brendan Aronson for as long as I possibly can. Uh, you've seen his growth go exponentially. And in fact, back to Chef's question, too, like we can talk about developing young players all we want, but without winning, it doesn't matter. No one's talking about the Philadelphia Union if we're not having success on the field as well right now. So I think Brendan's real stock rose the most in Orlando where we were winning games and, and turning some heads. So um, that is the piece that, um, you know, sometimes gets lost in all this. Everybody talks about, developing young players and then bringing them up. But if you don't win, no one cares. So uh, that part has been good. And it's, it's put Brendan in the spotlight. Uh, a lot of clubs came in for him. Uh, obviously Ernst has a very close relationship uh, at Salzburg. Uh, obviously I know Jesse very well. There's, there's always been discussions. Um, unfortunately, as Shep knows, uh, and as, as you know, Steve, uh, you know, this, in this game, um, until it's done, <laughs> it, you know, and things are all signed, sealed, and delivered, you can't really um, say it's done. So uh, I have to refrain from any, any real specific comments. But Brendan is a guy that um, obviously we want to stay with us for the rest of the year and then, and then ultimately uh, move on to Europe um, where he is certainly qualified to play. He's, he's a really exceptional young kid, super talented, and uh, fun to work with. Well, Jim, you hit, hit the nail on the head in terms of Orlando and Aronson, because I look yeah. at, and I'm sure you guys do, the biggest database in the world is transfer market. And they yeah. say his value went up a million and a half dollars just on the Orlando tournament. I think they have him valued at 4.4 million. I think he's worth more than that. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I agree. And, and, and it, did, uh, it did pop in that competition, though. It was kind of the perfect, I hate, this, I hate to use a, a horrible global pandemic as a, you know, a perfect storm for us, but because the other leagues were kind of shut down at that time, so many eyes were on our games. It was the only thing that was on. And there were, as you guys remember, there was game after game all day. Um, so a lot of scouts were reaching out and just, just tuning in that maybe normally wouldn't. Um, and it worked out really good for us because, you know, guys like Mark McKenzie played really well. Uh, Brendan Aronson played well. Uh, and kind of separating himself. Uh, and, and look, the kid deserves a ton of credit for what he did on the field, too. He, he uh, almost got better as the games gained in pressure. So uh, he's a special young player, and, and you, you kind of forget he's only 19 years old. Um, you know, and I've seen him now in the academy since he was eight or nine. And he has a little brother, Paxson, that's going to be coming through to, uh, you know, possibly replace him in the future, too. It was really special, and I can't wait to get to work with as well. So um, that jump was a big jump. Uh, you're right, uh, during that that Orlando tournament, which the league did a great job putting on, to be honest, uh, and keeping us going and, and, and salvaging a uh, season here. Where does Brendan fit in potentially on a U.S. men's national team? Because now oh, suddenly the United States has these young, exciting options as a potential 10, whether it's Gio Reyna, whether it's Pulisic maybe there. Can Brendan Aronson play that role? I think so. You know, look, I, I love all of our young talent too, um, but I'm always a little – um, reluctant uh, and, and Shep I think you can speak to this and until guys put in full seasons and they, they and then put in another season and then a third one and then you can start to talk about having a career I think sometimes we we 
one kid gets a, a game or two in Europe and all of a sudden we're saying he's going to step into the national team and he's going to dominate and here we go. We're going to go compete for the World Cup. I, 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 I'm a little hesitant. I think we could, we could all reel off, gosh, 50 to 100 names in U.S. soccer that, uh, of the kid that was going to be the next big you know, attacking star for the U.S. And, and just came up short for uh, a variety of different reasons. I will say that this, this group does seem different. It does seem special, and they are getting real minutes with the first team. Um, but so many things go into it, guys. Health, you have to stay healthy for full seasons. Uh, you have to, again, have the consistency, uh, and you have to get used to playing with each other. Unfortunately for our national team, sometimes, you know, sometimes a player doesn't get released. Sometimes a player gets a, an injury. Um, and they never really get to work together. So, uh, gosh, I love the idea of, of McKinney and Pulisic and, and Gio Reyna and Brendan Aronson in the midfield. Um, but I'm also nervous because how many times are they actually going to get to work together and play together uh, in this strange environment that we're in right now, all the things that go into that. But Brendan certainly plays a role uh, within that group. I think he's that talented. Um, good thing against Miami, he actually played as an eight, so kind of as a box-to-box -box midfielder and did really, really well in that game. So I think that that um, turned some different eyes. Uh, to, he doesn't just have to play the 10 role. Um, he's versatile in that he can really run and cover ground. So it's a really – I agree, guys. I believe more in the American – I don't want to come off the wrong way. I believe more in the American player probably than anybody, but I also maybe am a little cautiously optimistic. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for this group. I think it is a special group. Um, but sometimes it's too quick. We, some kid gets a game in Sweden and scores a good goal, and we say he's going to save the national team, and you go, wait a second. <laughs> Bump the brakes a little bit. Let's see uh, a guy do it for as long as Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, uh, gosh, Steve Chirundolo, so many names that almost get forgotten uh, and just had such long, consistent careers. Well, Jim, you stole my thunder because I, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, every time in conversations, even with my good colleague, Ken Gelosi, you know, wait a minute, slow down. <laughs> they just have one good game. Give me five yeah. seasons at yeah. a high level. I'm saying the same about Pulisic. And look, yeah. I'm excited about all these guys. Yeah. But I think experiences, as you well know, they got to really do it for a number of years. They got to be consistent. We're yeah. such a, maybe we're so hungry that it's a rush to judgment every time we see a good, exciting young player. I agree. I agree. And, and this idea, and again, look, I don't want to come off the wrong way. I am, I am more excited and, and will play American players probably as much as any coach in this country and, and, and certainly in MLS. But do yourself a favor. Go back and look at the World Cup team just from 2002, which is now, gosh, 18 years ago. All those guys played in Europe. They all were captains. Some of them were captains at Ajax and, and were playing at Man City and were playing at, at big clubs, um, you know, uh, gosh, go look at Steve Chirundolo's career. You know, all, all these different guys uh, uh, that, that were just so, so dominant. Uh, the goalkeepers that we had back then, I mean, they were playing in Europe. They were dominating in Europe at, at some of the biggest clubs. So um, sometimes we forget it's not a new thing. Uh, we had, we had uh, some pretty talented guys. Uh, people forget about John O'Brien. People forget how good Claudio Reyna was at Man City, you know, at, at big clubs. So, um, I love where the, the, the direction's going, but I, I agree there has to be um, real expectations. You know, I, I think we can't put too much pressure on these kids. Certainly they're the next in line. Uh, and, and I hope, uh, like heck, they all do really well. Um, but when they step into a team at, at Dortmund and, the, and at Chelsea, 
it's easier to play with those guys than it is MLS players. I have to admit that, that that's a reality too. You know, the, those guys make you look pretty darn good. You don't have to make, you don't have to make 10 plays a game. You maybe only have to make two or three if you're a defender. You know, you, have, you might only have to uh, make three or four clearances in the box. And, and, and when you're playing for the U.S. Um, with MLS players, it, it might be a little more challenging. So all these things weigh into it. Uh, certainly I'm excited as well, but man, do the exercise. Go back and look at that 2002 roster. Some of the guys that were on the bench, Joe Max Moore, you know, look at the career he had, you know, hundreds of games in the Premier League. So um, it's not as new of, of an idea, uh, Americans playing in Europe, as people think. We have more of them now, but the top end, um, I still think was really good back then. Well, your victory over Miami and Toronto FC's victory over Columbus has now created this three-team jockeying not only for first place in the East, but maybe Supporters' Shield as well. Orlando City is not far behind. I won't exclude them from the conversation. You'll face Toronto at their adopted home in East Hartford coming up this weekend. I'd imagine that has a big-time feel for your club this week. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it, it's already, you know, the weather's starting to get cold already. <laughs> you know, it's cooling off a bit. It has that, that playoff type feel uh, early on. So um, now we have to, you know, uh, recognize, look, Toronto over the years has been kind of the, the benchmark in the Eastern Conference. You know, they're a really dangerous, tough team. Uh, for me, Pozuelo is, is, you know, along with maybe Jordan Morris, you could argue MVP of the league. Uh, he's been that special. Uh, he's a really talented player. They still have Josie. Uh, again, another guy people want to write off and, and, and say some young kid's going to replace him, but he's still the best striker we have in our country. I, I believe that strongly. Um, so, again, they're, they're a handful. Uh, Greg Vanny's done a great job with them. Um, we do catch a break in that it's not in, in Toronto Stadium with, uh, with their fans behind them, obviously. Um, we're in Connecticut, which is a, as much of a home field for, for us as it is for them. Uh, so that's a unique uh, aspect that will come into the game. Uh, both teams are playing really well right now, though. I, I will say that. Uh, both are coming off of a big win. Uh, and both will, for once in this season, actually be rested going into the game. We'll both be pretty full, fully rested. So um, it's a big game uh, early in, in deciding that the top uh, of the Eastern Conference. Um, we have Toronto twice, uh, once now away, and then uh, home later in the year. So those will be probably two of our, our tougher games this season. Um, but it's great to test yourself against the best teams. Um, we're not quite in that echelon. I don't put us there yet. We're not with Seattle. We're not with Toronto or LAFC um, quite yet, but we're, we're starting to, to get in the discussion, which is something that we're working hard towards. Well, Jim, those years ago, and I got to spend some time with you. One of, the, yeah. one of the first things I loved about you in terms of coaching philosophy, and I'm not going to get it correct, so you correct me, <laughs> but it was, it was something to the effect of, I care what happens at the edge of that penalty area defensively yeah. and the edge of the penalty area when we attack. Yeah. It, it, and I, I believe that's, that's the game, Shep. Um, you have to defend, defend the box with your life. And, and when you attack the box, you have to have the same relentlessness in there. So um, we call it the red zone now. So basically if you drew a, uh, a line from the, the corner of the six, from the goal line uh, where the six connects to it, drew it all the way up, uh, to the top of the D uh, and you, you connected it. We actually have it painted on our field. That's how serious we take the red zone. It's, it's bright red and it just sets triggers off for guys um, to realize now if we're defending it and the ball's in that area, do everything you can to, to make a block, to, to, to sprint to the ball, to maybe you might not win it, but you'll at least make the guy make a touch where the next guy can, you know, the next guy's going to be coming. 
Um, so I'm sure as a goalkeeper, you'd like to hear that, that <laughs> we train that like crazy and we, we reward um, the defending of that red zone uh, uh, for a lot, for, with our, you know, we give everything in there. Uh, we want to block everything. We want to push, uh, deny any entries or any service into that area. You know, we did a study on it uh, in our league alone, 87% of goals are scored in that red zone. So while the, the nice 25 yard shot is the one everyone remembers, everything's done in that red zone area. And then conversely on offense, we work on getting as many entry balls into that area during the course of 90 minutes as possible. So whether we're up a goal, whether we're down the goal, we want to put balls into that box. And then percentage wise, um, that's where the game's won or lost. You know, you can talk about what goes on in midfield and sure it's important, but um, more times than not, even, even as recently again as Miami, their expected goals or whatever the analytics want to say, uh, they, they were at about a three, we were at about a one, but we went three zero. So at the end of the day, we were more, um, clinical in that area. Jim, we cannot thank you enough for your time. You've been generous. Before we let you go, help us understand something because there seems to be this real firestorm brewing now in MLS about the release of players for South American World Cup qualifying. Now, you have one, an important player in Jose yeah. Martinez who would represent Venezuela. Uh, is there real pushback now? Do you think these players are going to go and then quarantine on the back end at such an important time of the year? It's a, it's a tricky one for, for a lot of reasons. So first and foremost, playing for your national team is the biggest honor that our, that our sport has. So um, we all have to respect that and, and honor that as best we can. Um, we also have to recognize we're in a, in a pandemic where, um, you know, I think the safety of the players has to be thought of and, and talked about uh, as well. So uh, for these guys to be jumping on planes and, and leaving the country and all the different rules about entry and, and exit, um, you know, we, we, we are down to nine, nine games left in our season. And if you do do the math, um, and this isn't just my player specifically, this is basically if any player leaves right now, you're missing about six of them just because we're playing three in a week. You know, you, it, it's, it's at least four, probably six, you know, with the, the quarantine, like you mentioned on the back end. So um, some federations are going to be very um, understanding of that. Uh, some players are going to be very understanding of that. Uh, our league has certainly been helpful in, in trying to um, get on the side of uh, keeping the players safe and keeping the players uh, in the country in the U.S. Um, so I think it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. I, I hope that, that most people will, will err on the side of safety and, and the health of the players. But, man, it is tricky because these guys, especially the South Americans, where they're so passionate about their national team and, and what that means, uh, it's a real badge of honor. Um, so you, you hope that there's understanding from the federations and everybody can come to a solution. But um, I don't think everybody's going to be happy. That's a, that was a long-winded answer, but uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, upset people, unfortunately. Jim, thank you so much again. Good luck the rest of this season. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Great talking with you. Great catching up, Shep. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank good luck, Jim. Thank Thanks. you, guys. Thanks for having me. Terrific chat with, with Jim Curtin. Uh, Shep, the Conmy Bowl – World Cup qualifying issue now is going to be something that potentially divides players and MLS brass, coaches, and sporting directors, I think, over the next couple of weeks, because this is going to be something. And I think Jim Curtin clued us in. Some players are going to hear some things they don't want to hear right now. Yeah, I think Jim Curtin was very articulate and thoughtful about it because it's a mess and there's no way everybody's going to be happy. Some are going to be happy. Some are going to be angry. There's no common theme here. These clubs, uh, they're going to have a difficult time dealing with the federations. And every federation may take a different posture in terms of their players not, not 
coming when they're called in. So I don't see any way that it's going to be clean. They're going to be some very unhappy parties. You've been in the agency business as well. Try to put that hat on for one second, because I think the agents are going to be furious on behalf of their players. This is my guy. He's got a dream of playing in the World Cup in 2022, and your decision has hurt him. And let me say one other thing. The real shock to me is that Conley Bowl is going through with World Cup qualifiers in October. I, I don't know that we're there yet personally, but the fact of the matter is right now, as we have this conversation, those games are scheduled to take place. Well, you just set up the argument that's forthcoming. If you're an agent and especially if you're a player, there's no doubt about it. You got to go. You want to go. It enhances your financial security going forward. It's a big opportunity every time you play for your national team. So the agents and the players, they're on one side of the coin and it's gonna be players have to go. Brendan Aronson was part of our conversation and it appears just a matter of time now before this becomes official, a move to Red Bull Salzburg. Let me give you a little bit of a frame of reference here, okay? Ruben Diaz is reportedly being sold to Manchester City for 68 million dollars there are a lot of people that have never seen ruben diaz play all right uh but 68 million dollars is seemingly where we're going to land with this if if those projections are accurate we just spoke with jim Curtin with regard to aronson what's a good price and do you think that mls teams by and large have just been selling too cheaply well steve to answer your question i know for a fact having spoken to many of the clubs in europe that they are now looking to Major League Soccer as a real place to buy quality talent for a low price. Look at Brendan Aronson. Again, we talked to Jim Curtin about the, the database worldwide is transfer market. And that gives an approximation of the value of the player. And we talked to Curtin about it. Brendan Aronson, his valuation went up a million and a half dollars, but only up to $4.4 million. What did Tyler Adams go for? 3.3, very inexpensive. So Europe in general is looking to Major League Soccer for these young players. Look what, look what a player like Alfonso Davies, they bought him for $11 million. Now I know it's a Cinderella story. He's valued at $66 million right now. So to answer your question, look, are they selling too cheap? Ask for more money, you'll find out. Right now, European teams, they're looking at MLS. All right, so there's this perception of MLS as a seller's league, but they just had a big ticket buy in Gonzalo Higuain. We had to let Jim go. Uh, he was uh, pretty generous with his time, as we said, but we never even got a chance to talk to him about that last game. Iguain, who uh, Philadelphia gave a very rude welcome to Major League Soccer uh, the other night. I'm not sure entirely what the scuffle was about after the missed penalty. Is Iguain going to have a problem? And do you think he's going to be frustrated by and large, at least in the short term here, adapting to MLS and adapting to, let's be real, what he might believe is inferior talent to what he's used to playing alongside? Look, Steve, obviously I don't know him. I don't know his personality, but it's nothing new. Every international player at a high level that has come to this league has dealt with the same thing. I dealt with it, or my teammates dealt with it 40 years ago, Pelé and Franz and all those guys. So Beckham, Thierry Henry, every single quality international player 
has to deal with that. They look up and, hey, they're not eight guys I could pass the ball to. They have to figure it out. So not knowing Iguain, I don't know how he's going to do. But I'll tell you what, that's a bad spot, Philadelphia, to play your first game and get a reception. I don't know what the scuffle was about. But, wow, what a welcome to the league. We've got a lot to tackle before the week is out. Champions League qualifying. The Red Bulls trying for a third straight win over the weekend. We'll get to it. Starting with the next edition of Believe in Soccer, the Shep Messick Daily Cast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.